Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the final lecture in what I hope you will agree has been an absolutely splendid series. Uh, if anybody would like to stay behind tonight, the examination will take place at that stage, and it's worth a full 150 credits. Um, as a result of this series, we know a lot more now about world agriculture, about individual diets, and about food policy. But um, to borrow Lenin's time-honoured phrase, what is to be done? I can't imagine anybody better placed to help us with that question than Professor Jaya Henry. Jaya is currently Director of the Clinical Nutrition Centre for Clinical Nutrition Sciences uh, in Singapore and a Professor at NUS, the National University of Singapore. But he's also retained his position here in Oxford as a Professor at Oxford Brookes University and Director of the Functional Food Centre there. Uh, Jaya is one of those people who established food science and nutrition in higher education as a seriously professional concern, that is, much more than domestic science on the one hand and old-fashioned dietetics on the other. He began his career at the best possible place for this, at the London School of Hygiene and, and Tropical Medicine, which is where um, much of the pioneering work um, took place and is incidentally, for various reasons, top of my personal league table for UK HEIs. I think it's a remarkable institution. But Oxford Polytechnic were very lucky to catch him in the early 1980s. And the rest is history. He is now a global figure in this field. And I can't imagine, as I say, anybody um, better placed to tell us whether or not, and if so, how, we can make a difference in feeding a better future. Ladies and gentlemen, Professor J. Henry. Thank you very much, uh, Sir David, for your very kind words of introduction. But also on a personal note, it was David who appointed me 28 years ago to my position at Oxford Brooks. So if I do wrong today, you ought to blame him. <laughs> but it's an absolute delight to be back in, in Oxford, uh, notably to see so many friends and colleagues that I've not seen for many years. So thank you for coming. And I am particularly honoured to be the last speaker in the series, which I gather has been an excellent uh, event uh, during the past few weeks. Ladies and gentlemen, I have chosen a rhetorical question as my uh, topic, which is global nutrition, can we make a difference? And our question is, nutrition as a global challenge. So, in terms of my emphasis, I'm going to spend most of my talk looking at the nutritional issues surrounding emerging nations of the world. So, nutrition is a global challenge. I will make my presentation in three parts. Just share with you what is the nature and magnitude of our global undernutrition scenario. Share with you some of our own research studies within this context and milieu. And finally, looking through the crystal ball of the future, how can we as a community and as a nation state rise up to the challenges and opportunities that this gives us? 
Now, my interest in international nutrition, as Sir David has pointed out, came when I was a student at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Uh, I came to the London School in 1978 from a small town in, in, in Sri Lanka called Kandy on a scholarship to read human nutrition under the tutelage of John Conrad Waterloo. John was a huge figure in international nutrition as we shall hear a bit more about him. So I would like to dedicate this talk to my mentor, tutor and friend John Waterloo. So let's begin in terms of the magnitude. Today, roughly 2.5 billion people are either undernourished or overnourished in terms of obesity. So in other words, one in three people are in danger of a diet-related disease. And I think that's quite profound. So if you then drill down a little more on where are the people that are hungry in our world, we find two significant observations. The first is that a very large number of close to a billion people live in Asia and the Pacific and the next large group of people live in Sub-Saharan Africa. Indeed, part of this nomenclature is because of the extensive population in these countries but the key point is that Africa is a rich country in terms of resources and yet poor in terms of undernutrition. And I think the question is, why is that? When you look at Asia, one country that contributes a very large proportion of the undernutrition uh, cascade is India, and the surrounding region around India, countries such as Bangladesh, Nepal, <coughs> Cambodia, and even more recently, Sri Lanka. And I say even more because Sri Lanka used to have very little levels of undernutrition, but today it is not the case. This is a very interesting chart, but also quite alarming, because the number of hungry people increased around about 2007-2008, largely due to the global economic crisis that surrounded us, and it dipped down around about 2010, but I have to sadly report to you that in 2012, the number of people getting more hungry has increased, and we'll see why that is as we go along. So let's look at some stark facts of reality. Almost a billion people in the world are undernourished. One in seven people do not get enough food to be healthy and lead an active life. And the most important statistics is that approximately 11% of all global diseases have an attribute indirectly or directly due to malnutrition. So malnutrition plays a central role in a large proportion of diseases that may not be overt but may have a covert interjection. Six million children die of starvation every year and put it in some kind of a national context that's about one-tenth of our UK population every year and the irony is 
that this is preventable. I want to seek your attention on the second and third bullet point, which is that not only are children affected by undernutrition, but also women die during childbirth because of undernutrition, notably iron and other micronutrient deficiencies. And then the other remarkable statistics is that 19 million infants are born with impaired mental capacity because of the lack of iodine in their diet. So these kinds of statistics tells us that the magnitude of the problem is enormous and actually it is something that perhaps many nutritionists themselves sometimes may not have cognizant recognition. And the last point as well is that exclusive breastfeeding or the lack of it has this significant effect in terms of health outcome. Now, interestingly, when we give these stark data, one that jolts people into attention is when we talk about dollars and cents. So in the 1970s, the World Bank eloquently started to argue that if we did not take nutrition seriously, it is going to affect work performance, productivity and output so that there was a twist in how you could predicate nutrition as an economic dynamo of growth. And similarly, we can see that malnutrition has an effect on your GDP and of course without a shadow of doubt, all of you know that the Millennium Development Goals can never be achieved if we do not address malnutrition and undernutrition headlong. And I just in passing wanted to talk about overnutrition because 2008 is a very landmark event in our human history because 2008 was the year when the number of people overweight and obese exceeded those that are undernourished. But of course, in many countries of the world, including developing countries, we have the double burden of undernutrition and overnutrition, cheek by jowl or juxtaposition. But I'm not going to spend much time on overnutrition because I think the urgency of our discourse is much to do with undernutrition and micronutrient and macronutrient deficiencies. So coming to the four major nutritional deficiencies, they are protein energy malnutrition, one in four children worldwide are afflicted by it, vitamin A deficiency, 100 to 140 million children worldwide afflicted, iron deficiency, 4 to 5 billion worldwide, so that's nearly 80% of our population, and iodine deficiency, a third of our population in terms of vulnerability, does not mean that they're all affected. So let's look at each of these in turn with some introspection. These are the two extremes of protein and malnutrition that many of you have seen uh, in the media, uh, Koshyoko on one extreme and Marasmus on the other. And I'm going to pass any complicated questions to Professor Alan Jackson, who is in the audience, who is expert, one of the world's expert in this, in this area. But just to put it in context, Marasmus by definition is a child 
that is completely emaciated both in terms of lean tissue and adipose tissue. In the case of Koshyokou, paradoxically, there's a lot of loss of lean tissue, but there is a lot of fat accumulated in the liver. And the characteristic features of Koshyokou are edema, low serum albumin, skin depigmentation, hair depigmentation, fatty liver, and moon face, which you can see in this child, which actually is John Waterloo's own slide from his work in Jamaica. You can see the fatty liver, the hepatomegaly, uh, you can see the edema on the child. In fact, the child looks quite fat in commas, but this is because of edema. You can see the depigmentation, the moon face, and the hair follicular changes. And here you see the classical uh, exfoliation of the skin. Now what is fantastic is that we can make a difference with nutrition. Here's a child from India, two years old, that weighs 6.5 kilograms, where it should be weighing about 14 kilograms. The same child on nutritional therapy has gone into a bonnie baby within six months. So nutrition can have an effect. So in the 1960s, John Waterloo, working in the Tropical Metabolism Research Unit in Jamaica, with funding for the Medical Research Council, and indeed Alan Jackson took over his, his uh, directorship after John, they developed a very strategic methodology for the treatment of malnutrition, which falls into three phases. Phase one, phase two, and phase three. In phase one, all you're trying to do is to equilibrate the fluid and electrolyte balance using a saline dextrose solution with no major micro macronutrients going into it. And in phase two, you start the initiation of the growth process in terms of providing mild bouts of calorie and protein. And in phase three, you have catch-up growth. And this has now become standard operating practice in terms of rehabilitation within the, the, the major UN agencies, including the WHO. So let's look at the phase two, and I'll explain why we are spending a bit of time in this. And you can see that in the Jamaican model, which was of course in the late 60s onwards, they used dry skin milk powder, 17 grams, sugar, oil, all made up to one liter with water, and it is a milkshake although it doesn't take like a, stays like a milkshake, it's a milkshake type model that was used for the phase two of the uh, ingestion. Notice two important points. First is that to get these children to start the initiation of growth, you have to give them 12 feeds per day every two hours. And then of course down to about eight to six hours. And it tells you that it had a very small amount of protein, less than one gram per kilogram, and in terms of the calorie content, it is quite small. So this is the stage two of the, the pro process. And in the catch-up phase, as you can see, now we have increased incredibly both the protein and calorie intake because you want the same formulation in larger quantities to facilitate the induction of catch-up growth. And on this kind of a regime, a child can grow 20 times the normal rate, that's 20 grams per kilogram per day. So in other words, it literally grows like a coconut tree from this to this 
it is almost doubling its weight from about 5.5 grams to 8. So they are literally growing a new arm and a leg within five weeks. So this is possible within the context of a hospitalized setting. And I think it's a great tribute to John and Alan's team that this has now become a globally accepted uh, methodology. However, as you can see, it has some interesting challenges. First is that it requires portable water because you need to make it into a solution. And as you know, in many developing countries, portable water may be a challenge. Secondly, because it's made out of liquid of high moisture content, once the product is made, it could have microbial proliferation if you didn't have refrigeration or in the temperature of the tropics. Feeding frequency is quite high, therefore it requires some kind of a manpower or a paramedical to provide the, the feeding because the baby can't feed on its own. And of course it is usually done within a hospital setting. And so therefore, around about 1990s, a French pediatrician called André Briand had a eureka moment when he was having his breakfast, croissant <coughs> and peanut butter. He must be an unusual Frenchman. And he said, my God, this peanut butter has high protein, high energy, just like the nutrient that was used for catch-up growth in Jamaica. So therefore, he, in concert with a French company called Nutriset, produced what is now called ready-to-use therapeutic food, which is based on peanuts. So that's what it looks like. So it comes in a little sachet, like a, like a chocolate bar. You squeeze it, and so any toddler can eat it without having to prepare or cook. And this idea revolutionized the therapeutic intervention of feeding malnourished children into well-nourished children. And the other advantage was that you did not have the, 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 the child or the patient admitted to hospital. It could be done within a community setting. Now, here is the formulation of the ready-to-eat uh, therapeutic food. Peanut butter, as I said, extra oil, milk powder, icing sugar, vitamin mineral pea mix, and that's what it actually it is quite tasty, and I have tried it. But if you think about it, this product is made in France, and many of the countries that have afflictions of undernutrition are in developing or emerging countries. And so there is a logistic issue of transportation and the use of this within the local community. So, the second point is that as many of you know, peanuts are highly susceptible to fungal attack and it produces aflatoxin which is a terribly dangerous and toxic mycotoxin and secondly, peanut potentially has the ability to have an allergic reaction and finally in, in the emerging market context, milk powder still remains quite an expensive commodity. So, in, in 2000, Steve Collins, a clinician working in the UK, approached us and said, can we try and reformulate a plumpy nut using locally available ingredients 
that is relevant and appropriate for Timbuktu to Thailand to Toronto. And so that's what we did. Can we completely replace peanuts and milk powder for the formulation and production of this highly nutritious and tasty food with long shelf life? So one of the things we need to be made very careful is that A, the formulation had to have good nutritional quality both in protein, energy and micronutrients. It should have a long shelf life because you don't want it to be made today and, and, and go uh, sort of spoilage tomorrow. Highly palatable and it should have the consistency suitable for feeding infants and children. And finally, it should not have any additional processing just like the plumpy nut had. So we used a very simple model that has been around for many, many years. We used a four matrix model. So we had a cereal, a legume, sunflower and sugar and vitamin mix because most cereals lack in an amino acid called lysine, which is an essential amino acid. And most legumes are lacking in an amino acid called methionine. So but we put it together, it's matrimony that they combine one with the other. And so we developed a whole series of formulations using chickpea, and wheat, lentils and barley, split peas and wheat and you can see the energy content and, and the protein content and here we have a whole range of formulations that we develop using the same model I talked about and this is what the formulation that we developed compared to the plumpy nut. As you can see it's very very similar. So the take home message is that we were able to take the idea of the plumpy nut but most importantly localize it to each country's culinary and, and dietary practices so that they can use their own cereal legume mixtures to make a product that can be used for nutritional rehabilitation. And as I'm, as I'm very pleased to note this idea has now been expanded so there have been a whole series of studies done using the concept that we developed and refined. So here's a study reported uh, from Malawi and here's the one from Ethiopia and here's from Congo and I also know that this model has now been translated and used in Bangladesh, in, in Mali and also more recently in parts of India. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of how a, a simple idea was twisted in terms of application and localization from our, our, our perspective. So we talked a little bit about uh, rehabilitating uh, protein and malnutrition. Let's now look at vitamin A deficiency a little more carefully. Vitamin A deficiency is very common in many parts of the emerging countries. It's associated with blindness, immune response, and in diarrhea and in malaria. Now, Vitamin A deficiency can occur due to poor availability but also it can be exacerbated if the child or the adult is suffering from protein energy malnutrition. So what is the role of vitamin A in terms of nutrition? Now this is I think quite a worrying situation. Nearly 500,000 children go blind every year because they do not get access to vitamin A. So 
Vitamin A deficiency is one of the most preventable forms of blindness that we have today. Secondly, the lack of vitamin A also exacerbates your immunological response so therefore you are unable to actually defend your, your mechanisms. And it is quite widespread right across Africa, right across Central and East Asia and South Central America. So it's quite a pandemic situation. Now vitamin A deficiency goes through phases of, of complexity. The first sign of, of vitamin A deficiency is night blindness followed by beta spot and conjunctival xerosis and corneal xerosis and then to severe form of ulceration. Now the important point is that if you find a child with beta spot or mild conjunctival xerosis and provide the child at that time with sufficient vitamin A you can save the child's eye. But when it, when it progresses this form of ulceration it can't be saved. So time is at its essence. The second point is that when a baby is born the baby's liver has little or no stores of vitamin A. So vitamin A as you know is in normally two forms retinol which is found only in animal sources so that's dairy products, liver, fish but as we know if you are pregnant and therefore you want the mother to have a high dose of retinol, vitamin A is highly toxic and in fact is teratogenic. So therefore we can't feed the mother during pregnancy to upregulate his vitamin A intake with the proposition that will go to the baby. So you've got to find another way to get vitamin A into the pregnant mother because pregnancy as you know is a very important precursor of providing sufficient vitamin A to the baby. So for many many years the treatment of vitamin A deficiency has been the provision of 200,000 micrograms of retinol which is the vitamin A formed by oral ingestion or occasionally in terms of an intramuscular injection. Now the World Bank and many UN agencies have been using this model for many many years and here we see the vitamin A capsules being, being delivered. But if you think about it, supplementation of vitamin A cannot have global coverage because you need to have access to the patients, access to the children, which may not be possible in many emerging countries. So the question that we wanted to ask was, was there another route that we could adopt to get vitamin A into mothers during pregnancy and lactation. And this is quite amazing. Many of you who have traveled to the tropics will appreciate that the tropics is surrounded by a cacophony of wonderful plants and, and fruits and leaves which have beta-carotene. So why is it that in the surrounding beta-carotene milieu are we still finding vitamin A deficiency? Because we know 
that beta-carotene can be converted to vitamin A by the body. Now interestingly, all the colors and the hues that you see in many fruits from things like sweet potato to carrots to pumpkin is because of carotenoids, but only about a half a dozen carotenoids can be effectively bioconverted from beta-carotene to retinol, and the conversion is quite poor. Incidentally, many people have been under the view that if you want to eat a raw carrot, it is better for you than eating cooked carrots for bioconversion of beta-carotene to retinol. I have to beg to differ because actually boiled carrots may not be as tasty as crunching into a raw carrot, but boiling actually opens up the cell wall to allow the beta-carotene to have better bioavailability. So this is something I'm going to come back to because one of the mysteries is why is it that in many, many emerging countries, despite people eating a large amount of dark green leaf vegetables which are rich in beta-carotene, do not get sufficient vitamin A, which is the profoundly important vitamin that is required for, in, uh, for ocular integrity. Now you can see why. Because for every unit of beta-carotene, it only is converted to about 10% that. So if you eat, for the sake of argument, 100 micrograms of beta-carotene, you're only going to get about 10 micrograms of retinol. So therefore, the bioconversion of most plant retinols are quite poor. So that may be one reason why we can't get sufficient bioconversion in many of these children and adults. Now, we are quite fortunate that Mother Nature has provided a very high concentrated form of beta-carotene in the form of red palm oil. And those who have seen red palm oil, we know that the palm oil looks like blood red. And it is because the red palm oil has a very large amount of beta-carotene in it. Unfortunately, when we get it into the supermarkets, it is deodorized, detoxified, decolorized, what have you. They take out all of these. So palm oil comes in two forms, as you know, palm kernel oil, which is, the, which is the, the seed here, and palm oil, which is from the pulp. So this is the pulp palm oil that we used in the study we did in, in, in Tanzania, where we asked a very simple question. What if we feed pregnant mothers in their last trimester red palm oil, which is a very rich source of, of beta-carotene. So this is in a village close to Singida, is where the study took place. 90 women were divided into three groups. One group fed red palm oil for six months from the last trimester to the, 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 the third month of, of lactation. Another group fed sunflower oil and another group fed no oil at all but made to eat their normal dark green leafy vegetables. So here you see the, the characters of, this, of the study. And what is quite interesting is that you can see here the, the subjects that were given red palm oil were eating very large amounts of beta-carotene compared to the control group, sunflower group. But remember, both of them were already eating their village dark green leaf vegetables. Much to our surprise, and that I think is the key take-home message, feeding dark red palm oil did not significantly affect the breast milk of the mother in terms of retinol. If you can see here, this is the breast milk retinol in the first month of postpartum and this is the, the, the retinol in the breast milk in the third month of postpartum. So in fact you can see that in the sunflower group, 
they in fact had slightly higher levels of breast milk retinol in the first month of postpartum, roughly the same in terms of the red tower group. So what's happening here? How is it that when people are given large doses of, of, of beta carotene, it's not being bioconverted? It turns out that the single most important commodity to bioconvert beta carotene retinol is the presence of oil. So you have a huge paradigm shift. Most of us in, in, in advanced countries eat about 35 to 40 percent of our calories from oil and in emerging countries it can be as low as 10 percent, 12 percent. So not only is their food high unpalatable but most significantly this bioconversion cannot take place in terms of the conversion of beta carotene to retinol. So that's the story about, about vitamin A. Now I want to move on to iodine uh, deficiency, which actually, as you know, is quite pandemic in many parts of the world, particularly in regions where there is volcanic soil. And here you see different grades of, of, of goiter, which is caused by the lack of, of, of iodine. But the most important take-home message is that if you are pregnant and have iodine deficiency, you are likely to give birth to cretins or in worst case mildly mentally retarded children. So a small lack of iron in the diet has a profound effect on the offspring. And there are many regions of the world even today in Papua New Guinea, in parts of, uh, of, of, uh, of, of uh, uh, China, in parts of India where this still remains a problem. But in fact, much of the ID deficiency today has been eradicated or minimized because of the introduction of food fortification. <coughs> food fortification, as you know, was first commissioned in the United States in the 1940s because of the huge uh, incidence of pellagra that happened in the, in the 1930s onwards, mostly in the southern states of America and also in many parts of Europe. And as you know now, as, as a law in many, many countries, Paul Morrow, who knows very well, uh, that we have by law to fortify wheat flour with iron, calcium, thiamine, and niacin. So fortification is a very interesting instrument that we can use to deliver many, many micronutrients into consumers, particularly if you know what type of vehicle that we can use and what is the vehicle in terms of accessibility that they, they will eat. So many, many staples have been targeted uh, together and as you can see, food fortification has become a very sensible way to deliver many, many micronutrients otherwise not able to be provided. And here you see a salt fortification plant. It's a very simple process. All we have is a premix of, of salt with iodine in it. And in this case, the double fortification of salt for, with iodine and iron for anemia. Remember, iodine deficiency and iron deficiency, iodine and iron were major problems globally. So you have a simple process where you add the, add the micronutrients into salt and, and you have a ribbon mixer. And this salt, as you know, can be delivered and consumed by everybody. Why salt? Because salt is something that has got two attributes. One is most of us need it. 
And the second is you can't easily overdose yourself with salt because it's self-regulating. Even if you have a salty palate, you can't eat 10 grams of salt. I hope you don't. So therefore, this choice of the vehicle is very, very important because you need to make sure that there is universal applicability and universal coverage, but more importantly, that it could we not have a large overdose in, in its usage. So here you see fortified sugar uh, in, in Guatemala, where they use sugar as a vehicle to get your vitamin A. Now you may have a debate about that, but I think it's very interesting that if you want to, to abate blindness, where you require vitamin A, you have to look at many ways in which you can deliver these products. So you can see here, in, 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 in contrast to many countries, we have foods fortified with margarine, sugar, salt, tea, I don't know how it tastes though, can't be PG tips I presume, uh, NSG, soy sauce, curry powder, again I'm not sure what it tastes like, breakfast cereals. In the UK, breakfast cereals makes a major contribution to our micronutrient intake. So fortification has become a very important instrument of delivering micronutrients, otherwise not possible. So let's now move to another challenging group of people, which are refugees. Now globally today, there are about 10 million refugees who are fed by many UN agencies. Historically, Refugee ration was based on 400 grams of cereals, 30 grams of legumes, 20 grams of oil, and 5 grams of sugar on a per capita per day basis. On such a diet, in 1990, there was a very severe outbreak of pellagra amongst the Mozambican refugees living in Malawi. So this is the characteristic symptoms of pellagra, which is diarrhea, dermatitis, dementia, and finally death. So when the outbreak happened in 1990, the then British Overseas Development Agency sent us out to Mozambique to find a way to abate this problem that was actually quite serious. So we had only these four commodities to work with, because this is what they were getting. And so the question was, what intervention nutrition can we provide to quickly abate the pandemic occurrence of pellagra in this population? And we obviously decided that the only solution under these circumstances would be to use fortification, which had never been done in this part of the world for refugee feeding, using fortification of corn flour with the conventional niacin, riboflavin, thymine, iron and calcium. And so what was a powerful argument of what we did was we basically compared the nutrient intake of the refugee rations with pet foods and you can see that pet foods that we give our pets has got much more micronutrient competency than that was given to the refugees. And that made a powerful argument to how we can get the nutrients that we require into this population. And now it has become standard practice to fortify many of the foods that are delivered to refugees, whether they live in, in, in Thailand or in Cambodia, using the simple model 
of on-site food fortification. I want to now quickly wrap up and I think one of the most challenging areas of nutrition is this whole business of low birth weight. That is children born below 2.5 kilograms. And as you can see, 25% of children born in South Asia are LBW and the industrial nation's values are around about seven. Why is it important? Because you see that a very large number of children born in Southeast Asia are low birth weight and that has got very serious consequences because if you're born low birth weight then you grow into a short statured mother and stature of you is one of the predictors of whether you will give birth to another low birth weight child. So it's a very future circle. It has got a multi-generational dimension. But more importantly, from Allen's group in, in South Africa, David Barker, I think, made a paradigm shift in our nutritional thinking by saying that if the fetus is compromised at growth, then it carries with it nutritional dysfunction later in life. So we've got to blame all our mothers, not ourselves. But on a more serious note, how do we eradicate or minimize low birth weight still remains a big challenge because it's quite difficult to upregulate birth weight in many of these communities. And it turns out that if you are low birth weight, your risk of getting type 2 diabetes, hypertension and heart disease are manifold increase. And one suggestion of the pandemic nature of type 2 diabetes in India and China is because many of the Indian children were born low birth weight. And so it makes a lot of sense of trying to address and attack the LBW question in terms of public health and public health issues. So what are our conclusions, ladies and gentlemen? The global birth malnutrition still remains high, notably in PEM and micronutrient deficiencies. Undernutrition, a major cause of increased morbidity and mortality. 80% of undernutrition is clustered in 30 odd countries. That's a very interesting statistics. That about 30 countries in the world really represent a very large proportion of our global undernutritional paradigm. Whilst progress has been made in many areas to eradicate undernutrition, several challenges remain. One of the challenges, we think there's a lack of global leadership in nutrition. It's everybody's interest, but nobody's responsibility. Lack of awareness of the magnitude of the problem, notably amongst our thought leaders. Thirdly, there's a dichotomy of intervention. Should it be purely treatment or should it be prevention? And then fourthly, there's a weak linkage between trade, agriculture and development because as David pointed out, nutrition is one of those disciplines that is completely multisectorial, from food production to food assimilation to food manufacture to food consumption. And of course the trade embargoes then come into play. And the last point is that I think we still view private-public partnership with some degree of skepticism. Skepticism is good, but I believe that right approaches of private-public partnership may be necessary if we are to eradicate some of the major issues that surround us in our world today in terms of global undernutrition. Now, of course, 
people always ask the question, oh, we don't have enough resources and money. So I put this up to show that this is an old slide, but I think it's very, very true today, and I rest my case in terms of, I think, it's not a, a shortage of money at all. So nutrition, ladies and gentlemen, is a discipline that has international relevance and can improve the lives of millions. Ladies and gentlemen, for over a century, beginning with Casimir Funk, who was living in London, who in 1912 coined the term vitamin for the first time to articulate the accessory factors that we needed for good health, through the great doings of nutritional science over the years, including Hopkins, Krebs, McCann's, and Widdowson, and of course Waterloo, to name but a few. Britain has played a pivotal role and in being the forefront of nutrition research and food policy. Britain remains committed to eradicate undernutrition through the Department of International Development's program on nutrition. Food security for all is a moral imperative. If we can unleash the vast talent and expertise that we have, we certainly can make a difference. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what makes Britain Great Britain. Thank you.